Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. I'm Jordan, and uh, we've trawled Angel Fire, GeoCities, and Tripod message boards to get the choicest cuts for this beef from the early aughts. I'm so excited. We got Creed, we got Limp Biscuit, and they're both so fascinating to me because they have these huge sales figures, which are then dwarfed by the hatred that they seem to inspire on such a gargantuan scale. I don't know if it's like, you know, a classic case of silent majority rock, I guess. Yeah, these bands were part of the last era, really, when rock bands sold millions upon millions of albums. I mean, I think they each sold upwards of like, I know Creed at least has like an album that sold 10 million copies. I think Limp Bizkit has a couple records that that got up that high. And to me, they really were the defining bands of like the late 90s, which was a time in America where I feel like we were in this like really decadent period. You know, there wasn't really anything wrong. going on in the world. I mean, there weren't any wars that we were in. There was no real economic strife. You know, we didn't have social media melting everyone's brains into mush. Um, Like Bill Clinton having an affair was the worst thing going on, I feel like. Exactly. But I feel like when there isn't some larger cause that can unite Americans, whether it's like World War II or like the way that the country briefly came together after 9-11, we turn inward and we get (laughs) self-destructive. Just because I think we're bored as Americans. And I think that happened in the late 90s. So, like, we gravitated to bands that either peddled self-important angst, which was Creed, or proudly dumb party music, which was Limp Bizkit. And, of course, these two bands ended up turning against each other and sparking a feud. I re-listened to both of these in preparation for this episode. And, you know, I did that with Blink-182 and a few other episodes. And with Blink... I was surprised by how much I enjoyed revisiting all that music. I not only was just hit with all these great waves of nostalgia, but I was really impressed with just the quality of the songwriting, and I I really appreciated it. 
This didn't occur when I revisited the music of Creed or Limp Bizkit, I have to say. I found myself just as confused <laughs> as I was back when there were radio staples. Yeah, you know, I already feel like I'm in an awkward and frankly shocking position here because I think I might be the one in this episode who actually defend at least one of these bands, which <laughs> I probably would not do in any other context. Uh, I don't want to tip my hand too much here, but I will say that self-important bands rarely age well. And in fact, I think they seem funnier the farther you get away from them. Whereas I think bands that are proudly dumb and don't take themselves that seriously actually seem like a little bit smarter once you have some time separating, you know, from their big peak in the culture. So I guess for now, I'll leave it at that. But before we go any further down that road where I'm going to actually defend one of these terrible bands, uh, we should probably get into the background of this feud. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. I guess it's fitting that this all started at a concert called K-Rock's Dysfunctional Family Picnic, which oh man, it's the perfect name for this. It's, so it's June 2000. There's a bunch of bands playing this radio station festival outside of New York City. The headliners are, are very 2000, I have to say. Ozzy Osbourne, Stone Temple Pilots, and Creed. And Ooh. Limp Bizkit is also on this bill, but they are not one of the headliners. And Fred Durst is not very happy about this. So he refuses to go on. I could see him being okay with taking a backseat to Ozzy and STP, but I don't know. Creed obviously is a sticking point to him. So he refuses to go on. And the band later claimed that there was some mix up over their set time and they were stuck in traffic and all those old excuses. But really, they weren't happy going on when it was still light out. I'm guessing that arson fires are less impressive when the sun is still out. I don't know. So finally, Sharon Osbourne gets involved, and you don't want Sharon Osbourne to get a pissed off Sharon Osbourne, I should say, to get involved. That's I mean, can you just imagine that voice and then the voice who's saying Nookie, just like screaming at each other? Like it's the immovable force and the unstoppable object. Yeah, yes, like they're in, coming in, in collision form. here. And, and and I will say too that like I am surprised that Limp Bizkit wouldn't have been a headliner because they were a huge band in 2000, certainly bigger than Stone Temple Pilots. Ozzy, you want to put up there because of the legacy aspect. But again, I, I've already set up the idea that I'm going to maybe be defending Limp Bizkit in this episode, <laughs> which I hate doing. I feel like a defense attorney that is like defending like a, a serial killer or something. Like I, I feel You're like I've been put in this awkward right position. Now, oh, but I will say that in this instance, I think Fredris maybe has a point. Although he probably doesn't go about it the right way, as we'll soon find out. Right. So Sharon Osbourne threatens to pull Ozzy from the lineup if Limp Bizkit doesn't perform. So they, they traipse to the stage and he's still pretty pissed off. You know, right or wrong, he's not happy. So he decides to take it out on Creed, specifically Scott Stapp. He gets on the stage and he tells the crowd, I want to dedicate this next song to the lead singer of Creed. Doesn't even know his name, probably. That guy is an egomaniac, he says. He's a fucking punk. He's backstage right now acting like fucking Michael Jackson. Fuck that motherfucker and fuck you too. And if you want, there's going to be a booth with pillows and blankets for when Creed come on. Ooh. Ah. Uh, can I just say, like, I, I've, I've seen the clip of this, like, a couple of times. And I think it's hilarious when he compares him to Michael Jackson. Like, that always makes me laugh. I don't know why. I just thought that was a really funny line. But I, Scott Stapp did not take that as a compliment. No, no, no. Nobody did. I mean, the organizers are already pissed at Fred for delaying the show. And now he's worried they're going to piss off one of their headliners. So they cut the sound on his mic. And this was just to give Fred, you know, a couple minutes to maybe cool down, but it has the opposite effect. He's furious that they tried to silence him. So he throws every mic off the stage in a fit of rage just to try to like foil all the future acts. And then he storms off after something like six songs. So not a great performance. 
Meanwhile, Creed are like in the wings, basically going, what, what the hell, dude? Uh, Scott Stapp gets out there, they start their show, and he seems to address the this whole thing during his set by telling the crowd, you know, it takes a lot more guts to say something to somebody than to say it to them behind their backs, which, you know, is probably him referencing Fred just saying all the shit about him when he was sitting backstage probably having dinner or something. In addition to that, they send Fred Durst an anger management manual inscribed to him by the band. This will help you on your emotional and spiritual quest, which uh, is weird. I just wonder, like, you know, back then it wasn't easy to get your hands on books. I mean, I think Amazon existed, but it's not like you had Amazon Prime. Like, I just wonder, like, how long did it take them to set up this prank where they were going to send him an anger management manual? Oh, their bodyguard had it. I've actually looked into this, which is sad in so many ways. Really? But yeah, their bodyguard just happened to have it on him. So they're like, hey, can we, can we, can we keep this? We got we to gotta send it to Fred Durst. And he was cool with it. Obviously, he'd read the anger management issue. So Creed is just employing, like, furiously angry bodyguards who have to consult manuals to control their furious rage. And then they realize we can utilize this for a prank against Fred Durst. It's like, I guess everything just came together perfectly uh, in this situation. It worked out well, but then they also challenged Fred Durst to a charity boxing match, which kind of negates yes. the whole anger management thing, right? Yeah. By the way, I love the charity boxing match <laughs> gambit, you know, which I, we've already seen that occur in other episodes, memorably in the Axel Rose episode, where I think him and Vince Neil were going to have a charity boxing match. Um, at, at some point, we need to do an episode on Tommy Lee and Kid Rock. Oh, my God. Because yeah. that was a feud. And I think they were going to do a celebrity boxing match, which I feel like these boxing matches never actually occur. I think the only celebrity boxing match that I can remember, they all involve Danny Bonaducci. Yeah, exactly. Like, Did like he ever if win? You challenge bon well, I don't know. I'm just going to, but I'm just saying, like, if you ever challenge Bonaducci to a fight, he'll show up. It is going to go down. Like, yeah, all these other people, you can you can challenge them to a boxing match and it's going to just be a big bluff. But with Bonaduce, it's going to be on. Bring your A game. So this all goes down on a Friday. And then Fred Durst appears the following Monday on TRL. And before we talk about this, I just wonder, like, do we need to tell the youngsters out there like what TRL is? Because I know that MTV revived it uh, recently, but it didn't really go anywhere. Just the idea that, like, back in the late 90s, that if you wanted to see a music video, you had to call a major network and you had to put in a request that they were not going to follow anyway. But hopefully later that day, maybe several hours later, like, that is how you would see a music video. You know, there was no YouTube back then. Uh, so I, I just find that to be, uh, you know, I, I mean, I lived through it, so I know what it's like, but it's just saying that out loud in our current context it's just like hilariously antiquated to me see i thought you had to get in the car and drive to Times square and just like stand there with a sign too i guess that was like option b yeah or like if you happen to have like pigeons right. in your backyard you could like r scrawl like you know i want to hear uh oops i did it again by britney spears and you would attach it to the pigeon's foot and then it would fly to new york city and drop the note in Carson Daly's lap like a week later. I think that was the other way that you could request videos back then. That's how Harry Potter heard the entire Backstreet Boys discography. <laughs> so anyway, TRL, it was this request video show on MTV. It was like basically the hub of youth culture for a few years there in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the biggest things that they played back then were teen pop and new metal. You know, those were like the two poles of the TRL universe. 
So Fred Durst went on TRL, and of course, Carson Daly, the host, asks Fred Durst about this feud that is simmering between him and Scott Stapp. And of course, first, Fred plays coy. He pretends like he doesn't know who Scott Stapp is. You know, very funny, Fred Durst. But then he goes off, starts ranting, and reiterating a lot of the same points that he made on stage at the K-Rock concert. He says that Scott Stapp is out of his mind. He thinks he's a better human than everybody. He says that Scott Stapp claims all this spirituality, but he doesn't give a damn about any of his fans. He says he ignores everybody. He has this quote where he says, you walk by his dressing room and his people, they look at you and they go, you do not approach the band. You do not talk to the band. You do not look at the band. And then you see him in the videos doing the Jesus Christ thing. I think referring to the video for hire, you know, that's where he's really doing. Have you seen that video? Like where he like outstretches his arms and he starts like levitating. Oh yeah. I thought that was like a tribute to the uh, scene in Titanic, but I could see Jesus too. <laughs> I, I mean, cause I think Creed has like a Christian rock background or there was some sort of Christian rock connotations. Yeah, Their relationship to that was so weird. Cause they always like denied it, but it was, pretty right. blatant. Yeah, I was always confused by that. I mean, this is like a tangent. We I don't know if we want to go down too far this road, but like there was that period like in the 90s like where there were like a lot of bands that came from the Christian rock scene and they would write songs where the pronoun could be Jesus or like it could be like a hot girl that you're singing the song to. <laughs> like it's not clear who you are serenading in this song. And like a lot of bands got over like that. And Creed was one of those bands. It's like, "Oh, they could be talking about Jesus." They could be talking about a girl or they could be talking about, you know, some guy that they want to punch out because they bumped him wrong in a, in a weight room somewhere or something. Like that was the that was sort of like the pretext of like a lot of Creed songs. You know, Fred Durst is, is basically calling him out, Scott Stapp, for posturing in this very self-important way. And, and Durst says, come on, man, put your feet on the ground because one of these days that's going to go away and nobody will have anything to do with you if you keep acting like that. End quote. And look, again, as like the Johnny Cochran of Limp Biscuit in this episode, <laughs> I will concede that like Fred Durst is an imperfect vessel for this criticism. But isn't it fair to say that like everything he just said there was like right on the money? I mean, like that seems like a very valid criticism of Creed. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how – I've never heard any direct reports from, like, fans of, you know, during meet and greet saying, like, you know, avert your eyes when you approach Scott or anything like that. But – yeah, I mean, the context clues from the videos would, would probably bear that out, that he probably took himself a wee bit seriously. And it, it goes back to my point earlier about talking about how self-important people, I think generally, they tend to get their comeuppets at some point. And the, and the music that they make looks ridiculous the farther you get away from it. Whereas I think someone like Fred Durst, who no one would say, you know, for everything you want to say bad about Fred Durst, and we're going to say some critical things about Fred Durst later in this episode. He doesn't seem like a guy that takes himself like that seriously. And in a way, I feel like no matter what else you want to say about him, all the terrible things about Limp Bizkit's music or, you know, the misogyny or like the violence that occurred at Limp Bizkit shows, you know, all that stuff that I think you could criticize them for. The lack of self-importance, I think, in this situation just makes him like more sympathetic to me. What I think is funny, though, about this is, you know, he's attacking step for basically being like an egomaniac but the one area that he doesn't go after is the music <laughs> which he kind of i feel like it. with creed yeah exactly like doesn't he say like he calls their music dope like on that trl episode and he says yeah he says i think they're a good band and th there are numerous instances of like fred durst saying stuff like this about 
Creed. And I, I, that sort of dumbfounds me because I feel like if you're going to attack Creed and not make fun of their music, what else is there that is, I feel like you're leaving like a lot of mockable material on the table. It's almost like Fred Durst is taking the high road. <laughs> the only time <laughs> he, I'll ever say that in this episode. Where he's taking the high road or like he like actually likes their music. So maybe, you know, again, I say this as Fred Durst's lawyer. <laughs> While I will defend him, it seems like another instance where we could say that Fred Durst has terrible taste. Right. Yeah, the ankle tattoos, if they want to tip off his, his defensive creed on, on major network TV shows is another tip off that he doesn't have the best taste in the world. That's true. But then Creed hears about this, and of course, they reiterate what went down at the K-Rock show as well. I mean, it seems like Fred Durst wanted to make this about, you know, Creed being like this, uh, again, like self-important band, Scott Stapp being an egomaniac. But isn't it true, like Creed, they kept kind of bringing it back to this almost like point of order type issue, like where it was like a, a dispute over the starting times? At this concert? Yeah, I mean, Scott Stapp was always just saying, he's calling me an egomaniac. He's the one who refused to go on because he didn't like his set time. He didn't like being lower down on the bill and he wanted to go on later, you know? So how dare he try to make me look like the prima donna when he's the one who's delaying the entire show because he wanted to go on after dark. So I think that was their point. And, uh, and Scott said, you know, he, he wrote a blog post and I, I, I feel so much nostalgia <laughs> even just saying blog post. He, put, he goes on the band's blog and he says, to be honest do you think, with you. Do you think Scott Stapp had a Tumblr? You know, do you think he had a, like a Tumblr, like where he was like typing out like Fallout Boy lyrics and. Oh, I think he had a know, Zanga. Writing about his innermost thoughts. <laughs> I'm thinking Zanga yeah. or a bloggy or something like that. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I'd he, love to read Scott Stapp's blog. <laughs> I wonder, it's probably on like the Wayback Machine or one of those things. I bet you it's archived somewhere. God, I hope so. But he basically claimed that, that he never even met Fred Durst. And then this whole thing was just was complete fiction. And Fred's just trying to deflect blame for throwing his own hissy fit for not wanting to go on at the right time. Uh, so the band puts out a statement. Scott has his little blog post. Uh, Fred Durst responds uh, to Creed's statement with a terse one of his own, I think, to MTV. And he said, what I said about Creed, I meant. The starting time of our New York show had nothing to do with my comments. I bet some fans who've tried to meet them would agree. I don't even care about what other people in the business say. Our fans know what we're about, and that's all that matters to me. Yeah, you know, again, this is, it's, this is fascinating to me. And I'm going to tie it back to like what I said earlier about just what America was like at this time. Because again, I think that it was this very decadent period. It was a very decadent period in the music business where I think 1999 is like the peak year of record sales of all time and this was like right as napster was starting to come in but like not enough people were using it yet so there were still like a lot of teenagers out there buying records and because it was this sort of again decadent you know even like vapid time you end up having what to me this sort of has like a moral component to it which is a weird thing to say in reference to these two bands because they're both so shitty but I, I do feel like, in a way, Fred Durst is, like, positioning himself as, like, like if, like, if this were, like, an 80s movie, like, he would be, like, the slobs, and Creed would be the snobs, you know? Like, he's, like, the John Belushi, and, like, the, uh, and Creed are, like, the blonde, like, fraternity guys. And, you know, he's trying to, I think, maybe in his own way, like, wave this sort of populist flag for, like, the downtrodden or the people that are looked down upon. Which, again, is like a weird thing to say in the context of this rivalry because they're both such dirtbag bands. 
Right. I just have no idea what he's basing that on too, though. Like, especially if Scott is, you know, I know it's a he said, he said thing, but like if Scott's telling the truth, he's never even really met him. Then like, I don't know. And I've never really heard of all the things I've heard about Scott Stapp personally and his music. I've never heard anything about him being a dick to fans, though. Well, I think, again, I think it was Creed's image Mm. that was, again, like you, you watch their videos and the lead singer is holding his arms to the sky and being lifted. And, you know, I haven't seen the video for a long time, but I think that video ends with Scott Stapp in the arms of like a crying Jesus Christ who is cradling him like a newborn baby. I could be mistaken. I could be exaggerating that. But I mean, that's the vibe of that video. Of course, it's possible that I am like totally overanalyzing this. And this is just a pissing match because Fred Durst was mad that they weren't headlining the K-Rock dysfunctional family uh, Christmas. You know, that is always a possibility here. But I mean, I again, I feel like uh, some sympathy to uh, to Fred Durst in this rivalry. And it is interesting too, because like you feel like, okay, this is sort of like a small thing and it could have ended just right here. But then like, didn't Scott Stapp end up perpetuating it? Right. This is inexcusable. This is, you know, I've, I've actually been defending Creed probably a lot more than I'd like throughout this episode so far. But the, yeah, you're, the, the, yeah, you've taken, the, you're, you're like the defense attorney for Scott Stapp. Here. I know. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I know. We're both like in a twilight zone of, of filth and scumbaggery in this episode uh this is bad this is inexcusable this is part of my plea deal bargain for scott i will admit that he did do the following he perpetuates this argument between himself and fred durst this is about a month after the dysfunctional family picnic incident goes down and um creed calls fred durst to task for how he handled a young group called taproot later of of poem fame i don't know anything beyond poem am i missing anything with taproot anything good you know I uh, I have no idea. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I could, uh, you, you, your knowledge of poem is like <laughs> way more than my knowledge of taproot. Okay, that, that's good. So, so, sorry, sorry to all the taproot heads out there. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll dig into the back catalog after this episode. So Fred Durst does this up and coming band Taproot Dirty. This is during the period when Fred Durst, which I didn't realize was a VP for Interscope. <laughs> you know, in addition to his many <laughs> Limp Bizkit duties, he was also, I guess, doing A&R for Interscope. Who knew? So he's one of the many headhunters trying to sign Taproot, and the band went another direction, I guess apparently because they hadn't heard from Fred in a while, and that he was too busy fighting with Creed, presumably. So they go off and they sign with Atlantic. They're real happy. They got a major label deal. And then the lead singer, this guy called Steve Richard, comes home, and he's got a message on his answering machine. And he plays it. And I like to, to read it almost in full because it, it's, it sounds like something that would be from, like, Goodfellas. It's, it's really incredible. Okay, so. It's awesome. It, it's, like, borderline psychopathic. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, may, it's like a bad may, screenwriter. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I don't think it's even borderline. I think, like, Fred Durst lost his damn mind right before he left this message. Okay, so this is from Fred Durst leaving it on the voicemail of a singer who signed with somebody else and not him. Steve, Fred Durst. Hey, man, you fucked up. You don't ever bite the hand that feeds in this business, bro. And your fucking manager so-called guy is a fucking idiot, a loser motherfucker going nowhere. You have just chosen that path. I took you under my wing, brought you to my house, fucking talked about your ass on the radio in press, and you embarrassed me and the Interscope family. How am I doing? Can I just say, like, you read that so chipper? <laughs> really? You read I was that really so trying. chipper, man. You're like, hey, Fred Durst, hey, man, you <laughs> fucked up. It's like, wow, this Fred Durst is like, he sounds pretty chipper. I like stood up this. for that, too. I was like really going for it. I just imagine him being like, Steve, Fred Durst, 
hey, man, you fucked up. <laughs> you don't ever bite the hand that feeds the business, bro. Like, more kind of surfer, like, drawn out. And he's probably, like, super stoned, too. I'm guessing, like, he had smoked some bowls or, like, done some lines before this phone call. Because this, again, it seems unhinged and maybe, like, a bit of a drunk dial. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, he sounds like a but, pissed off mafioso. He's saying that now you got enemies and you're fucking yourself already. Don't fucking show up at my show because if you do, you're going to get fucked. You and your fucking punk ass. You're a fucking dumb motherfucker. You're learning right now exactly how to ruin your career before it gets started. All of the luck, brother. Fuck you. Click. Oh, man. So that's no good. You know, and really, it's like, where's Taproot now? You know? I think Fred, <laughs> uh, again. As Fred Durst's lawyer, Powerful I have enemy. to point out that uh, Taproot, other than Poem, apparently, whatever the hell that song is, you know, no one remembers Taproot now. Uh, and, you know, maybe if you hadn't crossed Fred Durst and caused him to make this psychotic phone call to your house, you'd be playing stadiums right now. It's probably fair to say that more people remember this voicemail than they do Taproot's song because <laughs> it it starts making the rounds on like early file sharing services and Creed obviously have nothing to do with this, but they decide to point out the fact that Fred has clearly not read the anger management manual that they so generously uh, gifted to him. So Creed puts out this. They really committed to that bit, <laughs> the anger management <laughs> manual bit. You know, it's like it's like we okay we have the book we're gonna send it to you. And then we're going to do a callback the next time that you make like, a scene of yourself in public. <laughs> right. So, like, this is like a recurring bit that they, and I got to say, like, okay, I've been defending Fred Durst. I will say in this instance, good on you, Creed. That was a good callback to your joke. I feel like the anger management thing kind of fell flat at first, but this was a good callback to it. Good callback, but. I don't know. I always kind of saw it was kind of a goody goody move, like finger pointing, like, look at what they did. Aren't they bad? How could they do that? These are, we will not stand for these, these mafioso tactics in the industry, these vulgar comments. You know, he's worn out his welcome as an artistic spokesperson for our industry. Fred's vulgar comments and violent threats are totally indicative of a mobster mentality that this industry has tried to rid itself of in recent years. It's just this like kind of pearl clutching statement that they put out, which. I don't know. It's kind of like, you don't need to get involved with that. I think it's hilarious that they referred to Fred Durst as an artist spokesman for our industry. You know, <laughs> like that, that Fred Durst is like this statesman that all everyone was looking toward for moral guidance. And uh, it's like, oh, wait, Fred Durst like made a scene of himself on someone's answering machine. This is totally made us rethink all of the faith <laughs> that we put into Fred Durst as a, as a rock solid representative of our industry you know like the great thing about this rivalry is that whenever anyone opens their mouth they make themselves look like even more stupid than the person that they're criticizing like it's the most self-defeating rivalry maybe that we've talked about yet oh yeah it's amazing and the best part of the creed you know like na 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 statement they put out is that they sign off by re-upping their ask for a charity boxing match, which... Yes, uh, the charity boxing match. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I, I wish I'd seen that go down. That would have been incredible. Well, and spoiler alert, it didn't happen because, as we said before, unless you're challenging Danny Bonaduce to a fight, these things never happen. Uh, and it's always about, I think, one person backing down. Like, if you're going to have... Like, like, one person's going to, like, really push the charity boxing match and maybe both people are going to be into it for a while, but like you don't want to be the one that caves. No. Because you can always be like, well, I would have done it. If they would have done it, I would have done it. Uh, but in this instance, 
Fred Durst was the one that backed off. And he made a statement. And he said, Creed should take a hint and spend more time sending autographs than writing about me. The boxing match sounds like fun, but I'd rather not resort to violence since I'm busy doing a free tour. And by the way, that was the tour that Limp Bizkit did. I think it was in 2000. For Napster? For It was the Napster tour. So in this instance, I guess Fred Durst was saying that I am an artist spokesman for the community because I'm doing free <laughs> tours for people. Uh, I, I am the Gandhi of new metal, if you will. And I don't resort to violence. I'm a nonviolent man. So he's trying to take the high road while also backing off from the charity boxing idea. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was good. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, guys. I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
The next thing that happens in this rivalry, and I think this is like somewhat speculation. I don't know if this has ever actually been confirmed, if this is a response to what was going on or if we're just reading too much into it. But like Creed put out their album Weathered in 2001. Can I just say, by the way, that like calling a Creed album Weathered, it's it's very self-aware. Yeah. Uh, You know, because I feel like if you listen to Creed for too long, like your ears become weathered, you know, like they become very beaten down and aged and uh it's just not a great situation one of the big songs from this record i guess it's like a i don't think it was a single it was like a it was a deep cut though that a lot of people liked it's a song called bullets do you know the song bullets oh yeah that's a that's a for creed that's a heavy track oh that's heavy baby it's a heavy piece of shit but (laughs) it's a heavy song um and there's a line in the song that i think is hilarious and I think it's maybe a reference to Fred Durst, where he says, at least look at me when you shoot a bullet through my head. And which I think is a reference to like, you know, Fred Durst going on stage and saying all this stuff about Creed at the dysfunctional family picnic, um, you know, the pre, you know in, in the summer of, of 2000. I just think it's hilarious, though, that the conceit of the song is that it's better to shoot someone in the head if you look at them in the eyes. It's like, hey. If you're going to shoot me, do the honorable thing and look at me in the face. It's like, how about just don't shoot me? Like, I feel like any bullet to the head from somebody is inherently dishonorable. Like, if you're going to kill me, uh, you know, there's not a lot of honor in that. So, like, if you get the chance to talk to somebody before they shoot you, the first thing you should probably say is maybe don't shoot me. I agree. That's that's a that's well, a good. Yeah. Or else I would say you know, shoot me in the back of the head so I don't know what's coming. You know, I'd rather just be on my way, having a good day, and then all of a sudden I'm dead. You know, like I don't realize the bullet's coming. I feel like that's the better way to go. So like if I were to write bullets, I would say, shoot me in the back of the head, please. I would, that would be the sensitive thing to do. Like that would be my lyric. But apparently Scott Stapp and I disagree on this. So anyway, that seems to be another instance of Scott Stapp perpetuating this very dumb feud. Which, again, I, I choose to believe it's about Fred. And I guess uh, because obviously this feud was still sort of in the news when, when they released Weathered. It was only a year after the, uh, the K-Rock Dysfunctional Family Picnic. Uh, he's asked about Weathered. And Fred says it's really a good album. He takes it really well. In fact, he's talking to MTV.com. He says it's a great record. No filler. It's like these guys know how to write songs. They know how to write songs. So the melody and the words and the things, you just wake up the next morning and you're singing it. So Fred Durst is walking around his house singing Creed songs, which I I really like that. All those things are wrong, by the way. All those things he just said are wrong. (laughs) It's not a great record. There's tons of filler. They don't know how to write songs. There's some melody, but not enough. And if you sing the songs, you hate yourself because you are mad that there are Creed songs in your head. It's like, you're in a feud, dude. Like, make fun of their record. Make fun of their music. He called My Sacrifice the biggest song of the year. Oh, there are many frustrating things about this rivalry, but that is the single most frustrating thing. That, like, Fred Durst did not make fun of their music. It's like, if you are going to fight Creed, you have so much great material there. And we've already made fun of them in this episode, and not even as much as we should. I mean, I, I made fun of the video for hire. We haven't even talked about the song With Arms Wide Open. You know, their big power ballad. I remember like on some show, 
I don't know if it was like the MTV Video Music Awards or if it was the Grammys. Scott Stapp sang that song like while holding his baby on stage. Like, did you see that performance? Oh my God, I, I blocked it out until just this moment. Holy shit, I forgot <laughs> about that. Wow, wow. Just singing this like incredibly maudlin. Are we sure that was his baby? Sentimental. Uh, well, good point. I don't know. Maybe it was like they rented a baby. Cause it's like, hey, we need a prop for this like pathetic power ballad that dullards are going to like get into uh, and, and cry when they hear this song. And they're going to like, oh, like, oh, he's holding a baby. But that's a good point. He he probably kidnapped that baby for all we know. <laughs> you know, could have kidnapped that baby, held it for ransom uh, just for that performance. But anyway, getting back to the point, it's like whenever Fred Durst is asked about Creed, he's just talking about them like they're Led Zeppelin or something. Yeah, he's very, well, you see, this is a couple months after 9-11 and he goes on to say, you know what, anything that went on between us, water under the bridge, you know what, I really, I don't want to put any more negativity out in the world. I said what I said, I had an opinion. He he said, I had an opinion, they're like assholes, everybody has one, which is uh, <laughs> oh, man. classic Fred Durst right there. Yeah, spoken like a true artist spokesman for the <laughs> entertainment industry right there, like a true paragon of the industry. And, and, and then Creed backed off, too. And what I think is hilarious, I mean, there's many hilarious things here, but like as a, as a peace offering to Limp Bizkit, Creed, I, I don't know if they actually did this, but they considered taking Puddle of Mud on the road as an opening act because Puddle of Mud was like a protege of Fred Durst, which, again, that's like another thing you could nail Fred Durst for right there, <laughs> like Puddle of Mud. Like, don't get me started on Puddle of Mud. I mean, they're worse than either one of these bands Oh, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. But I just thought it was, again, that's like another instance of like whoever is talking in this rivalry totally undermining themselves like by their own idiocy, you know, that like Creed is trying to make amends and their peace offering is we're going to tour with this incredibly shitty band that like Fred Durst took under his wing. They should have really toured with Taproot. That really would have been the the, the best way to end this feud. Oh, man. Yeah. Dude, a, a Creed, Puddle of Mud, Taproot, Triple Bill? Are you kidding? That's like butt rock heaven right there. <laughs> so the feud is essentially over, but before we move on, I really want to talk about this hypothetical charity boxing match a little bit more. Like, who yes. do you think would have won that? Well, okay, so you have Scott Stapp, who I think at that time was probably in better shape than Fred Durst. When you say, I mean, it, it, he'd always wear those like white tank tops that showed off his arms. Oh yeah, he had some guns. Absolutely. I mean, just check the arms it, it wide open like video. It's probably they're probably right. huge because he was always like spreading them out. It's probably like exercise. I mean, it's like bowlers <laughs> have those huge arms. It's probably like that. So yeah. And also, as we know, I mean, like from the footsteps poem that he had Jesus walking alongside of him <laughs> wherever he went. So like Jesus was his wingman who could assist on kicking anyone's ass if Scott Stapp got into a fight. Fred Durst, you know, in comparison, I mean, I don't know what he would be like as a fighter. I don't know if he's ever taken any martial arts or anything, my assumption is that he would be like a dirty fighter, you know, like probably wouldn't fight fair. Oh yeah. Well, I so, know exactly how he'd be as a fighter because have you ever played the fight club video game? He is a character in the fight club video game. What? Yeah. I didn't no, know there was such a thing. I mean, he was terrible. And I don't even remember like one of my friends had it. I remember playing it and was like, Oh, okay. You know, it's Tyler Durden. We're going through. And then all of a sudden it was just Fred. And you click on it, and it was Fred Durst. And he had, like, the red Yankees hat. And he was, I, I don't know what kind of string. I guess what he was saying to Taproot was not a lie. He's a powerful man who can pull strings and get himself in the Fight Club video game, which, uh, check it out. It's pretty amazing. I don't understand, like, what the context was for Fred Durst to be in the Fight Club universe, you know, that he was just 
somehow fighting Ed Norton all of a sudden on a video <laughs> game. It's very, very intrigued by that. Um, well, anyway, so, okay, so you have some uh, reconnaissance from the Fight Club video game that suggests that Fred Durst might be a good fighter. And we also have Scott Stapp, who we both seem to agree is probably in better shape. I have to say that for me, if these two were in a real charity boxing match, um, I would probably take Scott Stapp just yeah. because I think Scott Stapp would probably take it more seriously. And, you know, I just imagine him doing like the Rocky Four training regimen, like where you go to Siberia <laughs> and you're like dragging boulders <laughs> up mountains, you know? Like, I think Scott Punching Stapp is crazy enough. Exactly. I, I think he would take it seriously and train and make sure that he could like break Fred Durst. Whereas I think Fred Durst would probably show up with like a red ball cap backward, you know, some Playboy bunnies, you know, having partied all night and would maybe look at it as a joke. And then he'd get in the ring and realize that there was no joke and that he was going to be in big trouble. So that would be my prediction. I, you know, I, I probably would go with Stapp too, but I could also see Fred Durst. I mean, listening to that voicemail lets me think that there's this whole other side that he can tap into that of just unrestrained fury. And I could also see Fred Durst just binging on a, just the training with like a diet of jolt soda for days on end until he's just completely wired. So I don't know. I edge to stat, but it would be close, I think. It would go multiple rounds. What's interesting about this rivalry to me is, you know, again, it was short-lived. And I think the reason why we're looking back on it is, again, I feel like these two bands signify something not great about the late 90s and early 2000s, but I think something important about American culture. I think, again, the popularity of these bands, I think, says something about, I think, the boredom of, like, a country that has too much money and too much time on its hands. You know, a very decadent, fat, you know, over-rich country that is about to maybe be taken down a peg. You know, and that's what America was, you know, like, right before 9-11 and all the weird things that have happened in the last 20 years uh, of the 21st century. You can really see with these two guys specifically, too, that, like, after this rivalry, you know, after their their, their feud here, their careers took a header. Both went down, I think, yeah, like, right after this. I mean, it was like, I mean, like within a year or two. And uh, it's just interesting looking back on them because, I mean, they seem like such products of their time. And you feel like these two guys couldn't have existed much longer after this, you know, because American culture was changing so much. The thought of Creed and, and Limp Biscuit being sort of like the part where American culture, the wave crested, is is such a depressing thought for me that I'm having a hard time even like contemplating the end of this episode right now. <laughs> but I mean, but but, You're but right. don't you no, think? I, I mean, but like they seem like archetypes of like a rock front man that doesn't really exist anymore. Oh yeah, I mean, I I always thought that you know they they each take on these archetypes of like asshole rockers of the past. You know, you've always thought Fred Durst was kind of more like Axl Rose with his on stage tantrums. The sort of shameless shit-talking followed by failure to actually fight when invited. And then sort of the egomania, too. They're like, you know, no, we're not going to go on stage when it's light out. And I'm going to go storm off stage after six songs and stuff like that. So, And the metaphor even fits the whole band, really. You've got the departure of Wes Borland. And after that, the band just went south. And it's kind of like when Izzy left GNR. And you even have... Limp Bizkit's sort of long gestating stampede of the disco elephants, which I think has been in development hell for like eight years now. They've been promising that album, something like that, uh, is kind of like their Chinese democracy. Yeah, except no one cares about that album. <laughs> That's the difference. Like people were curious to hear Chinese democracy. I'm not hearing a lot of like, like there's no like online petitions 
about release stampede of the disco elephants. You know, we must hear this album. I mean, maybe there's like you know a dozen people in Florida or something that want to hear that. <laughs> you know, record, curious about I, a, I a Limp think... Biscuit album that's like eight years or ten years in the making. I gotta say, I, I, at that point, I am curious. I mean, we're curious because we're lunatics, right. you know. But I feel like the average sane person is not going to care about that record. But we'll see. And Scott Stapp always struck me as kind of like you know fellow Floridian Jim Morrison, sort of this boozy, oh, yeah. boorish brawler with a messiah complex and delusions of self-righteous spiritual advancement. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting, obviously, that Scott Stapp, like Jim Morrison, struggled with substance abuse and mental illness for many years, and thankfully he's moved beyond that now, But and it took a huge toll on his not only his health, but his public image. And as you said, the 2000s for both these guys, not a pretty time. Yeah, you know, I think when you know we look at both of these guys in their arc since the early aughts, to me, like Scott Stapp seems to have had a harder go of it. I mean, you know, we'll talk about Fred Durst here in a minute, but you know, you mentioned his struggles like with alcohol abuse and, and and mental illness. And, you know, we've been having some fun with Scott Stapp. I don't want to make like too much light of that stuff, though, because I th- it does seem like it's been a serious problem with him. You know, even when it's come up in contexts that are kind of funny, like, I mean, the 2002 story, for instance, like where... Oh, the concert? Uh, they actually got sued. Ooh. Yeah, like where they got sued by their own fans <laughs> because like the show was so terrible which I don't think that's ever happened before, like where fans actually came together in a class action lawsuit to sue a band for sucking. Like, you know, not even the shittiest bands in the world have had that happen to them, but it happened to Creed. And the reason why they weren't very good that night had a lot to do with Scott Stapp. And it it seems like he was going through something that night, if he was under the influence of like drugs or alcohol, or if he was maybe having just a hard time uh, that night. But it seems like he was he was pretty off and... I think that case ended up getting dismissed, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think that those fans actually won no, they, that case. They cited a decision based on um, a bunch of uh, Chicago Cubs fans tried to sue the Cubs for having a terrible season. And so that was, and, and they lost. <laughs> so that was the precedent set. And I think that they threw the case, the judge threw the case out based on the, the Chicago Cubs ruling. So the Creed have been put on the same, you know, legal standard as the 2002 era Chicago Cubs, which is probably a club you don't want to belong to. Yeah, that's sad. That's tough. And then uh, there was another thing that happened. This was in 2005. And this is like, I guess, like a sub-rivalry that that we could talk about in this episode, which was between Creed and 311. Because uh, like Scott Stapp apparently was in a bar, like a hotel bar, with the members of the Rap Rock Collective 311. And apparently Scott Stapp was not a fan of 311 because he was like heckling these guys. And uh, apparently he was like throwing up like wadded up uh, (laughs) napkins at them and just being obnoxious. And like one of the guys in 311 said that Scott Stapp was actually like he was pounding shots and then slamming them on the bar and like shattering the, the shot glass like everywhere. Like that's how hard he was doing it, which is an incredible mental image. You know, I just imagine Scott Stapp slamming down shot glasses and, and breaking them. But like he was heckling the band and, and, and baiting them. And he actually ended up taking a swing at one of them. And I think he also like insulted like one of their wives, like just acting like very boorishly in this hotel. Again, <laughs> attacking the rap rock collective 311. I mean, it just gets weirder and weirder with him. It's like, he's going, he's like, he's running through like every rap rock band <laughs> in the world to have feuds with. 
Oh, yeah. The worst part about that was one of the guys that just had surgery and his stitches ripped open in the middle of it. So there was just blood everywhere, shot glass fragments, bits of wadded up napkins that he'd thrown at them. Yeah, it, that's a mess. That's a mess. Amber playing somewhere. So in 2006, you know, Scott Stappy's trying to get his life back on track. And, you know, he gets married to a former beauty pageant contestant. You feel like, oh, that's great. You know, that's a great thing Good for him. him. Hopefully he's going to settle down and, 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 and maybe get away from, like, the rock and roll life. But then he gets arrested the next day uh, for trying to board a plane to Hawaii while drunk. Which, again, you know, we'll say I think most people board planes to Hawaii when they're drunk. I mean, like, if you're going to Hawaii, it's pretty festive. That's a long trip. Uh, occasion. You know, maybe, yeah, maybe you're just, you know, trying to party and maybe you're nervous about flying. And, you know, that's not a, a, a totally unique uh, situation, but you feel like he was probably being belligerent in some way that caused him to get arrested. So that's sad. And then that same year, he's caught on a sex tape with Kid Rock and, like, multiple women. And I, I, I think this was, like, filmed, like, several years earlier, like, in the late 90s. So it's not like he was cheating on his his beauty pageant wife. But that's an embarrassing thing that goes on. And then he ends up, I think by this time, like, was Creed broken up again? Yeah, Creed broke up in, in 2004. And th that Chicago, the famous Chicago show where they were sued for sucking was not a good thing for the band for many reasons. But Mark Tremonti's family was, I guess, in the crowd that day, too. And so that kind of that kind of pissed him off. And then Scott Stapp stopped doing sound checks to try to, like, kind of save his voice. And that had been where the band kind of tried to make up bits of songs on the spot. And that was really a huge component of their creative process. So when he started sitting that out, I guess Mark Tremonti later would say that was kind of when we stopped making music together was because he, he wasn't there. And there were other things, too. I'm sure the substances played a huge role in just the communication breakdown. But I think in 2004, they officially broke up. But then I think all the other members got back together and formed another band without him called Alter Bridge. Which is, that's not Right, good. with Miles Kennedy. Yeah, exactly. They're just like, we got to get away from this guy. Although they did get back together with him again in 2009. Creed put out that reunion record, Full Circle, uh, which I think sold pretty well. And it debuted pretty high on the charts. But I mean, Creed has not been the band that they were at their peak. And again, like Creed was an absurdly popular band for a long time. I, I think people forget that or they want to forget it. <laughs> but, you know, they've definitely fallen down from a pretty high peak in their career so yeah it's been pretty sad for creed you know in the time since they were at their peak and and, and feuding with limp biscuit and of course limp biscuit i mean they've gone downhill as well pretty dramatically oh yeah i mean have you seen the uh 2000 mtv video music awards duet between fred and christina aguilera oh yeah it was brilliant <laughs> Uh, being sarcastic. It was awful. Yeah, it was terrible. And also, I don't really understand what he was doing there because he really wasn't involved in it. And when he was asked about it at the time, he said, I want the girl. That's it. Which is not a very gallant thing for Fred Durst to say. But this is this is sort of a theme with him. A pissed off Christina goes to the press and said, you wish you got some nookie from it. He got no nookie. That did not happen. It's some really crazy stuff that people want to insinuate and people want to say it. And it's hurtful. So that's not good. You don't you don't take a shot at Christina Aguilera and miss. That's that's not very nice. And it it, it gets worse. Yeah, then he did the same thing with Britney Spears, didn't he? Like reclaim that he had like slept with with Britney. Oh, times a thousand. Yeah, no, it got this one. This was just that was just a preamble with Christina for for the main event, which is the Britney Spears controversy. He's I guess writing I think three songs for her for uh, for what was going to be in the zone in two thousand three. And I, I would give anything to hear Britney Spears sing a Fred Durst song. I guess all that exists are, are his own demos. 
But um, he would claim that they had a fairly brief affair and he actually went on his own band's blog and to basically tell fans, you know, I, I never would have thought I felt this way. I never thought I would have felt this way about Britney Spears. You guys be nice to her because I guess some fans were kind of like, you know, ripping her for, I don't know, it was maybe they thought it was bad for his image to be associating with this like pop person. Who knows? Uh, and so he, he defends her on his blog and says that how much she means to him and everything. Britney goes on TRL and is kind of like, what? No, I mean, he's he's really sweet. That's a direct quote. He's really sweet, which is like the most friend-zoned thing ever. Uh, but he's not my type. Oh, yeah. Fred, apparently, after this TRL thing happened, withdrew his songs for consideration from In the, in the Zone. Uh, he goes on Howard Stern and he swears on the life of his son's baby blue eyes that they really did have a fling. And uh, Britney's team puts out a statement and says, you know, this is really sad. He's decided to make up stories. And this whole situation feels really junior high. So, bummer. He's just been friend-zoned publicly by Britney Spears. And he did this again when he does the cover of Behind Blue Eyes with Halle Berry that he directed. And he said, I guess they kissed on screen. And he later tried to make it seem like they had an affair there, too. And when Halle Berry was asked about it, she literally just laughed. Yeah, it's, like, pretty sad. Like, he's in the stage of his career, like, where he's, like, claiming all these relationships with, like, famous women. And Limp Bizkit, I mean, they were really considered a joke, I think, by this time in their career. They, 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 they attempted a couple different comebacks. There was that comeback in 2005, uh, the record The Unquestionable Truth Part 1, which I think was a very optimistic title, by <laughs> there the was way, no part to, two. like, put a part one. Yeah, there was no part two. Um, you know, it, I think that record sold, like, 93,000 copies in its first week, which... Now, if any band sold that much, I mean, that'd be like a great first week. But like in 2005, like that was not very good. And it was only five years after like Limp Bizkit was selling like a million records a week. You know, so like their popularity had just plummeted by that point. And then they tried again in 2009 to come back. And I think they put out a record called Gold Cobra in 2011, which I remember hearing once because I was just sort of morbidly curious about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, they they were not at their peak at that point. And again, I think when you look at both of these bands, it just underlines how they really seem to belong in their moment. And that once you took them out of that, like four or five year stretch in like the late nineties and early two thousands, like they just did not fit in. Like it was just something that was not going to work. It was like America had changed. We weren't in that decadent board place anymore. You know, by the end of the odds, it was like a much different world. Uh, and uh, it was like, I think people wanted to leave these bands in the past. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah Yeah Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So now, the part of the episode that I've been dreading this entire time, the pro case for both. Yeah, you know, we've, we've both have joked about being like defense lawyers for, uh, you know, Scott Stapp and Fred Durst. I've been defending Fred Durst. You've been defending Scott Stapp. So why don't you give the pro creed side first? I just got to say, I, I, I got to give them a slight edge for having better songwriting chops and Mark Tremonti's guitar playing. And, you know, although it's... Definitely not my favorite. Scott Stapp's voice has a power that's undeniable. I, I, oh, I hate that I just said that on tape. Jesus Christ. I, and I will say, I actually experienced the power of Scott Stapp's voice at very close range. My, my first job was I was working at VH1 uh, on their website, and they had a, uh, a morning show for a couple years and the whole shtick with it was that it was just like filmed on the floor. Like it was it was intentionally super low budget, although I'm sure it was also actually low budget. And they didn't have green rooms or anything. So I came into my little cubicle one morning and Scott Stapp was just standing in there singing, higher, I can't do a Scott Stapp voice, but singing the word higher over and over and over again as I'm like trying to just type on my little old Dell computer. So I got to say, having Scott Stapp behind you singing the word higher for probably five, 10 minutes, I, it was powerful. So you know what? For that reason alone, uh, it was unforgettable. I'm going to say Scott Stapp, powerful voice. There you go. Oh, man. See, I, I really want one of our listeners to like take 
just a soundbite of Jordan saying, Scott's tap has a power that's <laughs> undeniable. And if we could make that a pull quote that is applied to Creed and is also attributed to Jordan for the rest of his life, I would love that. Creed, honestly, I pride myself on being empathetic to, to bands, to like trying to understand what could be good about them. I have a hard time with Creed. I think that they are a very obnoxious, bombastic, annoying band. I will say I have interviewed Mark Tremonti, and he was a nice guy. He seemed like a smart guy. I've heard other people say that about him, like when they've interacted with him, that Mark is a good dude. I have friends who play guitar who have said that Mark Tremonti, in their opinion, is a good guitar player. I will also take them at their word for that. But in terms of my own personal opinion, I think Creed is awful. I think they are one of the worst bands of like the last 25, 30 years. I can't stand them. So that is the best I can do in terms of making a pro case for Creed. Going to the Limp Bizkit side, Limp Bizkit is not a great band. However, I will say, again, that if, I, if you have a choice between a band that takes themselves way too seriously and has no right to take themselves seriously because they're just a ridiculous, stupid band, which I think Creed is, and you have a band that is stupid but they own their stupidity and they're not trying to present themselves as being smart or profound. They're just like a dumb party band. I'm going to take the dumb party band because I guess I value self-awareness and I think Limp Bizkit is more self-aware. And I think Fred Durst and the comments that he made about Scott Stapp, the criticisms that he made from that K-Rock incident, as minor as that is, I think that he was in the right in that instance. I'll also say that there are a couple Limp Biscuit songs. And this, by the way, is the part of the episode where if someone wants to take a soundbite of me saying nice things about Limp Biscuit, this is the part you want to take a soundbite of. <laughs> I think that there are some Limp Biscuit songs that have held up pretty well and that I enjoy listening to if they happen to come up on a Spotify shuffle. Nookie, My Way, and Break Stuff. I will defend those three songs as being pretty good songs. And I think that they are signifiers of an era that uh, in a way I have nostalgia for because it seems like it was a simpler time in a lot of ways, talking about the late 90s. It also seems like it was a very corrupt time period as well. Um, but I think Limp Bizkit, uh, they define that period with those songs. So that's my defense of Limp Bizkit. Do you have anything nice to say about Limp Bizkit? <sighs> I, I have a really hard time with this section because I just, I, I hate rap rock sonically. I think specifically Fred's rhymes are, are terrible. I find his bottomless rage towards both the man and also women in general off-putting and, and even slightly poisonous. I think his lyrics are unrepentantly violent and sometimes homophobic and misogynistic. I think he's tapping into the alienation that a lot of teenage boys feel and then transmuting it into to violence. And it reminds me of like Eminem's Slim Shady character, but without the artistry or satire, I think it's the worst part. This is the pro side, Jordan. <laughs> this is the pro side, man. I don't, I mean, I, maybe this is a gross generalization. I haven't like sat down and listened to a, a, the discography front to back in a while, but I, you know, I view it as like Droog music, like from a Clockwork Orange. I just think of it as like nihilistic violence. And I Google. I really tried to research this section. I actually Googled why do people like Fred Durst, and Google responded with, "Do you mean why do you, why do people hate Fred Durst?" And <laughs> and in their defense, and this is where I go into the pro thing. Most people on Google answered, "Why do we hate Fred Durst?" because they cite the infamous Woodstock '99 riots 
for which I think they were unfairly blamed. And I, I know you have a lot to say on this. You've done a whole podcast series on Woodstock 99, but the fires that everyone sort of sees in their mind when they're thinking of Woodstock 99 didn't even go down the same day that, that Fred Durst performed. So that's going to be the crux of my pro Limp Bizkit argument is that they shouldn't be held responsible for the Woodstock 99 hellscape. There, there we go. I said a nice thing about Limp Bizkit. And look, he also, he's also directed movies, Fred Durst. Yes, he has. Like Scott Stapp hasn't directed any movies. He's, <laughs> I don't think they're any good. He directed that John Travolta movie, The Fanatic. Have you seen that? Oh my God, it's amazing. It's pretty funny. It's so, I mean, and, and the, the yeah. poster is so great too because it looks like, you know, alternate cover art for chocolate starfish and hot dog flavored water. It's like really creepy. Oh, he, he turns John Travolta into like this creeptastic demon. It's great. So when we look at these two bands together, first of all, I'm glad that they feuded because I think it's hilarious that these two almost came to blows, Fred Durst and Scott Stapp. And I wish that it actually would have happened uh, because. Seeing anyone punch Scott Stapp in the face or Fred Durst in the face, it would be very, very entertaining. But, you know, look, I hated both of these bands in the moment, but now I tend to find them more interesting than hateable. Uh, I guess I don't find them hateable anymore because they're not being shoved in my face all the time. Mm. You know, they've they've receded back into history, and uh, now they just stand as signifiers to me for, like, the pre-9-11 America that no longer exists. And perhaps that's for the best, but... I find myself contemplating what it was about these bands that made them seem attractive to people at the time. And, you know, I feel like you can learn a lot about America in the late 90s by listening to these bands. So, again, while I don't think that they're great bands or even good bands, I think in their own way they are important. And, uh, you know, they're bellwethers for a corrupt age, you know, both (laughs) of them. And I think that's their ultimate, I guess, place in history. No, that, that's, a, uh, as usual, a much more intelligent take than, than my own. My take is, is a tired, not very interesting take. And I admit that off the bat, but it's also a genuine feeling. I, I, to me, Fred Durst and Scott Stapp are like the devil and angel of suckiness. Like one may represent <laughs> goodness and light in the form of Scott Stapp. The other is darkness and chaos in the form of Fred Durst. But at the end of the day, they're unified because of how much I hate them. I, I, be it Creed's preachy, doomy self-seriousness or Limp Bizkit's penchant for perverting multiple genres to craft odes to wanton destruction. I will never be able to appreciate either of them. To me, they're two sides of the same coin, and I want to take that coin and cast it down a bottomless wishing well, and my wish is to never hear either of their music again. Well, Jordan, I got to say, like when I heard you saying all that stuff, you really took me to a higher place. <laughs> uh, I felt my arms being lifted and being carried to the great spirit above. So I want to thank you for your insights on both of these shitty, terrible, no good bands. I'm glad because all I feel is that I want to break stuff right now. (laughs) Well, on that note, I think it's time to wrap up this episode of Rivals. Hopefully next week we'll be talking about artists that we actually like and are worth remembering. Until then, thank you all for listening. (laughs) We'll be back with more Rivals next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.